an elite team of crack commandos based out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, have been tasked on a specific dangerous mission by command. They need to get $17 worth of crack that they will smoke through a rose they've purchased from Wild Bill's Smoke Shop on 3rd Street in Durham. They will smoke this in the alleyway behind Clitoris Bar. Awful. What are you doing? Afterwards, they will go home and while coming down on the crack, yell at their wife and threaten their families. This group of men in the Navy SEALs. Liz, if you had a rank, what would it be? Uh, elite tier one, alpha, triple A, excellent, perfecto, obviously. I was, you're not going to do Lieutenant Liz. No, I'm telling you, I'm in the, I'm, you know, I'm Q tier, baby. I'm like way up at the top. Fuck. All right. Well, the only thing higher than that's president. So I guess I have to be president. <laughs> nope. Special command. The president is just a figurehead. Duh. Yeah. Everyone but knows that. Everyone loves a figurehead. So actually they would, the popular opinion would be. You can me. absolutely be the figurehead. That's fine. I think that's good for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I accept. And as president, even though I'm just a figurehead, I still have this power. You're fired. Actually, you're demoted. I'm not even firing you. I'm disgracing you. You are demoted to lieutenant. That's so mean. Uh, well, you call me a figurehead, even though I was elected by the American people. I, oh my God. You're so mean to me. Well, we're supposed to be equals. No, I'm the president. Oh my God. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Hi. This is True and On. My name is President Brace. <laughs> That's not his name. My name is Liz. We are, of course, joined by a producer, Young Chomsky. Private third class. No disrespect, <laughs> private second class. And we have a hell of an episode for you today. Liz, Liz. so, all right, here's a little, here's the thing. It, usually in the podcast back and forth, one person talks, the other person talks, you get into the flow of it. Liz, yeah. what they did, what they, what, what Liz didn't move the there. They call, they call that a betrayal in the business. Yeah, I dropped the ball. You know what? I didn't yes and. She you hit me with a betrayal. I hit you with betrayal. I said no. I yeah. said no and no thank you. I shut you down. Dude, I and you know my- what? As Chomsky has taught us, that is not the rule of improv. I fucking, dude, I fucking spent seven years in a fucking Masters of Improv fucking program in fucking Juilliard just to have some goddamn amateur come in here and make me look like I a love, fool. Wait, okay, wait. That's This is a very cute bit and ha ha ha. But I'm sorry. It's very funny, the idea that Juilliard has imp, like an improv. What's, what is Juilliard? <laughs> it's like the most prestigious like <laughs> arts and theater program. But the idea is, that is it it like, is arts and theater? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, but the, and music. It's right. a huge music college. But um, – and dance and you know whatever, mm-hmm. but I don't think that it's like a prestigious improv. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, well, then, yeah, I did it but online. I like that idea. Yeah, <laughs> doing online improv classes, <laughs> dude. That's so great for a lot of people. I'm sure. Hello, if, everyone. If you are doing online improv classes at this moment, please never contact this, this podcast. It's over. You don't need okay. to do it. Hi, anymore. we have a great episode coming up for you, f-ing idiots. <laughs> I think so. I had a lot of fun with this. You know, I have to say, 
people would not think this because they have they have total like weird sexist notions and are all secret misogynists. That's right. I'm looking at you. But I love talking about the military. <laughs> yeah, Liz was actually the center of some controversy as she was the first female Navy SEAL. <laughs> yeah. Wait, ladies can't be SEALs, right? Or can they? Uh, or did they just open that up? No, I mean, they. there's oh, – who gives a fuck? Sometimes they talk I don't know. about I that. Can't, but I'll I know. be real I think- with you. Chicks can't lift logs good. Mm. That's why there's no lady loggers. There are lady loggers, actually. No. It's always it's like on ESPN three at like eleven o'clock <laughs> on a Tuesday in like September. It's very weird. Well, we have one of the premier lady logging champions with us to discuss the murders at Fort Bragg. I'm just kidding. We have journalist Seth Harp and uh Young Chomsky. Actually, you know what? Let's do thematic here. Hit me with some harpsichord and bring us in the interview. You don't have to hit us with some harpsichord there. In a deserted square in Mogadishu, the smoldering wreck of a helicopter emits black smoke into the sky. Liz and I repel from another helicopter that is in the air that did not get shot down. Uh, I repel better than Liz, as hey. I'm more used to. I'm just, I'm sorry, but I'm just, I, my body is, I've shaved my body like a swimmer in order to do it. More I'm lighter and... A little more nimble. I know, but now I'm Yoga. totally bald, so I would go down the rope way easier. I don't think that's weird to say. Um, anyways, in the wreck, as Liz unloads with an RPK into just randomly firing into windows, into crowds, some at the ground, back at the helicopter, we this uncover. What you told me to do. I'm sorry. It was a bad, uh, bad advice of me. We uncover. Seth Harp, investigative reporter from Rolling Stone. So glad to have you with us. Uh, Seth, an old buddy of mine, uh, uh, is a, uh, like I said, investigative uh, reporter for Rolling Stone on armed conflicts and organized crime. And uh, he is here to talk with us about a sort of chilling series of events, but really about kind of, I guess, a larger narrative uh, of of when the secret wars kind of come home. Um, and, uh, Seth, it is a pleasure to have you with us at last. Thanks, Bryce. Good to see you again. (laughs) Hi, Liz. Hi. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank y'all for having me. I got to say this piece in Rolling Stone, uh, the Fort Bragg murders is a real blockbuster. I know a lot of people and a lot of our listeners have been asking us, um, to cover what was a story that kind of came and went in the news. It was weird. I remember um, it kind of like popping up in the feed a little bit here and there, some, you know, kind of reports and people being like, huh, that's, that's very weird. What's going on here. And then just kind of like, poof, like anything having to do um, <laughs> with, <laughs> with military members gone bad, it just kind of like disappeared from the scene, but your piece, um, Really, I mean, it's it's really dive, tries to dive in and figure out what the hell was going on here. Can you um, maybe just walk us through how you came upon this story and why you decided to investigate? Sure, I uh, I read a news report um, of a double homicide that took place in in North Carolina um, on December second, two thousand twenty. So really, not that long ago. There was a, a deer hunter in the woods uh, right outside Fort Bragg. Actually, it was an area that the Army uses as a parachute drop zone. Uh, and there were two guys laying dead around a truck. And one of them was named Timothy Dumas. And we might want to talk about him later. But I would say the main character of the story was a guy named Billy Levine. 
um, because immediately some interesting facts started to come out about, about this person uh, who was a 37-year-old U.S. Army soldier. Uh, the first was that he was a member of Delta Force. Mm. Um, and, you know, you were saying earlier that the news kind of comes and goes. There are often news stories of bad behavior by special operators, Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, what have you. Um, but Delta Force is really a cut above all of those organizations. Uh, in fact, it's probably the most selective unit in the whole Department of Defense. Uh, there's really only about 300 Delta Force operators. So Billy Levine was part of a select um, group of people, to say the least. So the fact that he was just laying dead as a result of a firefight that nobody could explain by itself raised a lot of questions, given the extremely um, you know, secret, covert, sensitive, high-profile nature of, a, of the missions that the Delta Force carries out. Uh, the most recent one, um, most recent high-profile one being the killing of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi in Syria in 2019. That's the kind of uh, operations that mm-hmm. the Delta Force does. The second thing that emerged um, about Levine uh, was that he was under investigation for trafficking drugs. So was the other guy, Timothy Dumas, an anonymous army official leaked to CBS the day after the bodies were found, that both of these guys were under investigation for not just for trafficking drugs, but for trafficking drugs on Fort Bragg. That The last piece, I think, came from Stars and Stripes. Uh. Um, so that's that's interesting. That's really interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound like something that should be happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, there have been, there's cases every year of Navy mm-hmm. SEALs or Green Berets that get caught trafficking drugs. But again, yeah. um, the, 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 the fact that Levine was a member of a, of a tier one special mission unit to use the sort of technical language, um, that I had never seen before. So um, there's a rich, uh, I would say a spotty, but rich history of drug trafficking in the special forces. Um, the, the dots never like fully connect, but it, it pops to the surface every now and then. And mm-hmm. this seemed to be the case. Um, uh, of it happening at the at the very tippy top uh, of the of the Pentagon bureaucracy, um, and the next thing and third thing that came out about uh, Levine that made the story uh, very interesting was the fact that he had been arrested numerous times in the past around in the little towns around Fort Black, Bragg, uh, and had been let off every time, and in fact. In March of 2018, he had killed a guy uh, in Fayetteville and wasn't even arrested for it. That that detail blew my fucking mind because yeah. he didn't just kill a guy. He killed another – like, first of all, his best friend yeah. and another – he was a Delta – the other guy was a Delta guy, right? Uh, no, the other guy was tier two. He was special forces. He was like what they call white special forces. He was just a regular Green Beret. Mm-hmm. Um, but they had come up through the Green Berets together – uh, Levine had made the cut for Delta Force. The other guy who was a bit younger, Mark Leshiker, as you said, it was his best friend. Uh, and in fact, they had just gotten back from Disneyland. Um, or I forget, what's the one in Florida? Is it Disney World? Disney World. Disney World. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, I said that real quick. They, they, they stared into the, the to, into the heart of the Epcot Center and it drove them insane. I mean. well, when I was talking about drugs a moment ago, I forgot to mention that Levine himself was a heavy drug user, I, mm-hmm. I found, from talking to, to people who knew him, um, from people who partied with him, people who used drugs with him, told me that he was completely strung out, in particular, um, on cocaine, but he was also into MDMA, took a lot of pills, uh, drank very heavily, was extremely traumatized, 14 deployments. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so he, he was just a guy that was kind of falling apart, unraveling, um, and you know was just 
like I said, everyone that I spoke to described him as completely strung out. Um, so yeah, the Mark Leshiger killing in, Mar- in March of 2018, no one knows why it happened. There's not the least, um, you know, there's not even a theory of why he would have done this, but they had just gotten back from, from Disney world and they were, they were both taking a lot of drugs. Mark Leshiger, his, his mom and sister told me that he also struggled a lot with substance abuse with those same substances I mentioned before as Levine was, and had also been, uh, had TBI from a, an IED and, uh, Tajikistan of all places huh. put a pin in that if you want to talk about why yeah a guy like Mark yeah, Lesher or why he would have been blown up by a bomb there um, in 2017 but um, in any event the killing definitely happened it was witnessed by both of the men had young daughters age five Jeez. and six tragically they were right there in the living room oh my god uh, of like the suburban tract home uh, in Fayetteville and it happened in his living room and the little girls, you know, I've heard their account of it from, uh, from her mom and from her grandma. Um, and you know, it, it leaves no doubt that Levine pulled the trigger. Um, but you know, the girl at, at her age is not really in a position to explain why it had happened. She just said, you know, uncle Billy was acting weird. Uh, you know, daddy was angry, that kind of thing. Um, but in any event, the Levine called the police on himself, um, they arrived and he was taken down to the Fayetteville um, Sheriff's headquarters in downtown Fayetteville, excuse me, the Cumberland County uh, Sheriff's headquarters in downtown Fayetteville. And like I said, not placed under arrest, not read his Miranda rights, not booked, not even given a drug test, even though he's whacked out of his head on God knows Jesus. what. They had been partying for days. Um, and a little later that night, uh, three trucks pulled up to the police station, the sheriff's department, uh, filled with off-duty Delta Force operators, and he was just released back into their custody. Um, after that, just six months after that, he was arrested for maintaining a dwelling place to manufacture controlled substances, a ton of weapons charges. Wait, I'm sorry, maintaining a dwelling place to manufacture controlled substances. So uh, in my head... Uh that brings to mind like a meth lab. I mean, there's only so many controlled substances you can actually manufacture <laughs> at home, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure this guy was probably not refining quaaludes, heroin. but yeah, maybe he was making bootleg quaaludes. But in all likelihood, I mean, either <laughs> uh, making crack or you know, I'm yeah. just thinking, I think of the ones that are easy to synthesize. Maybe MDMA, maybe pill, like pressing pills or something like that. I mean, was that? No clue. I, I, I mean, I know he was arrested in possession of, because there's no details about this because the charges were immediately dropped. Of course, yeah. Yeah, but the arrest report itself is the only thing we have, and it's actually pretty informative just due to the uh, numerosity of the charges against him. Like you said, one one was uh, you know, manufacturing a controlled substance. What that was, who knows? The fact that it's in North Carolina kind of points to you know meth. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, he was arrested in possession of coke and um, crack and a scale and um, some other things, a crack pipe. And again, by all accounts, like coke was his thing. Um, That's ins- I mean, having having smoked crack a few times myself, like trying to do that while also probably doing a job like being in Delta Force. You know, I mean, that's astounding to me. It is not. Good. It is not good for your body whatsoever. Some, yeah. Well, I mean, we can pro- we'll probably get into this, but I think that there's a relationship there, obviously, right? Yeah, Where yeah. one becomes a requirement of the other. Totally. And an interesting twist on this story, um, and that I learned thanks to um, thanks to Laura Leshiker and Nicole Rick, 
um, who are relatives of Mark Leshek, or sister and, and uh, or excuse me, wife and sister, respectively. And they uh, they had a lot of insight into Billy Levine's personality because apparently he wasn't um, sort of like just like meathead, you know, JSOC murder weirdo that you would uh, you know, commonly associate, I suppose, and with with an organization like uh, Delta Force, I, su- I suppose, depending upon your degree of cynicism. But he, um, you know, he uh, was not like that according to them he was a more thoughtful guy he, he never went to college he, he's from the upper peninsula of, of michigan uh kind of grew up in a rural area according to his his father talked to me quite a bit his father was you know a working class guy i think was a tire salesman and a, a machinist um and the upper peninsula of michigan i've never been but i hear it's real rural i hear it's real country mm-hmm. um so that's the kind of guy that that he was no i, I didn't really get the sense that he joined for any sort of political reason. He joined before 9-11, just before February 2001. And um, it was just to get money for a dirt bike and uh, LASIK eye surgery, according to his father. I don't know if they still give free LASIK eye surgery to anyone who joins the military, but that was a thing they did back in the day. And so that's why he joined. And apparently um, the 14 deployments he did to virtually every theater the U.S. was engaged in after 9-11 left him really... um, disillusioned with, with the wars over there um according to to these women who who like i said like did, did a lot of drugs they freely admitted to like doing drugs with them and drinking with them and so forth uh and so that uh, during these you know um during these nights that they would spend out he would confess you know about things that had happened things that really bothered him killing a child soldier uh, other things that he had seen and he told nicole rick that he didn't think that the u.s should be involved in any of these conflicts so it just kind of complicates his character to a mm. degree because clearly he was spinning out of control. Um, clearly he was traumatized, but um, there was also kind of this like, um, at least by sort of Delta Force standards, a, more of an introverted intellectual side side to the guy by all accounts. Um, but leaving that aside, you know, the, these three things about, these three facts about Billy Levine and the fact that he... Um, appeared in the woods dead from a firefight that today to date nobody can explain in particular the fact that there had to have been a third person there yeah because um levine was found with uh a much of uh, several gunshot wounds to the chest wrapped in a, a blanket like a like an army blanket they call a whoopie in the army like an and actual because I, I noticed that detail in the article like an actual like, do they just call all blankets whoobies or is it like a specific one? <laughs> no, a whoobie is, a, I think it's technically, it's called a poncho liner. Yeah. But because it's kind of small and lightweight um, and warm, uh, you know, lo- soldiers will always have their whoobie with them. It'll be like the first thing you'll grab. Was grab it like, I mean, that would to me point to maybe, I mean, it also could just be his too, but like. You know, I mean, that, that was it his Luby or was it like brought by someone who shot him? Don't know. Nobody to knows, me, yeah. it looks so to me, it looks like he's um, from the details that, that have been reported and from, that I was able to learn. To me, it looks like he was killed somewhere else and then brought to that location in the woods because he was dressed in, you know, just this pair of running shorts and wrapped in a blanket mm. and then placed in the back of his own truck. Um, and then the truck was left abandoned in the woods and then Dumas was found outside of the truck on the ground next to it with a gunshot wound to the temple. So it would seem as though Levine was killed somewhere else and then brought there maybe by Dumas and then Dumas himself was killed at that site. But Mm. who was the third person who was there because someone removed all the firearms, there's no firearms found at the scene and there were no shell casings either. 
So somebody sanitized um, the site, somebody sanitized the scene and cleaned it up and, and walked away from there. And that's kind of scary because both of these guys, I haven't said anything about Dumas, I could, but both of these guys were extremely dangerous, uh, formidable, like, you know, people to, to fuck with. And yeah, because Dumas himself wasn't special for, I keep also wanting to, I mean, they're assassins. That, that right? old I mean, ad, it's actually pronounced Dumas. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, but Dumas wasn't special forces, although like many, many, many good citizens in this country does like <laughs> to pretend he was. Um, but, uh, but I mean, some of the crimes that he was accused of and had charges dropped off, I mean, he shot into a family's home yeah, and was arrested yeah. for it and then just let go, which I'm sorry, if I walk down the street right now and fire off a pistol into my neighbor's house, I have a feeling I'm going to go to jail for a little while. Can you imagine? Yeah. Dumas is an equally fascinating guy. Um, and had been arrested, um, many more times than, than Levine had. Uh, that, how they knew each other is a complete mystery, but Dumas had served in the 7th Special Forces Group, as you, as you mentioned. He wasn't a, an operator, though. He was support staff. He was a property uh, supply officer, um, which is a supply sergeant. Um, and he, uh, people who knew him, like you said, it, it, was, it was very strange because I wasn't able to speak to any of his family members, but I was able to get uh, speak to people who rented houses from him because he, he was involved in um, renting houses. He ran a nightclub. He, uh, I, I'm not quite sure what he's up to, but his activities kind of look like, um, well, he'd been arrested numerous times for assaulting women. Plus he was running this nightclub. I, I don't know. It'd be, it would be probably irresponsibly irresponsible journalistically to speculate as to exactly what. I, don't worry, I can do it, Seth. Sounds like a Jack <laughs> Ruby style pimp to me. <laughs> <laughs> just putting just putting the facts that I'm learning from a journalist together here as yeah. as as uh, a a human uh, amateur human an analyst like uh, like Liz and I are. Uh, sounds like uh, sounds like a pimp. Well, also our entire podcast is dedicated to uh, irresponsible speculation. <laughs> so that's what we're here for. Well, to the, to me, this guy seemed like a nightclub owner and pimp uh, and bully and an all around just bad dude. He had been arrested for assault numerous times. Uh, he had been arrested. Uh, I mean, just in the last few years, he'd been arrested for uh, smacking a woman with a bag of McDonald's hamburgers in Carthage, North Carolina, um, over in Winston-Salem, he had kicked in someone's apartment door and was arrested for um, impersonating a police officer. He'd been arrested for making terroristic threats, all kinds of alcohol, countless alcohol charges, too many to mention, many theft charges, um, uh, too many to mention. And he, like you said, he had been arrested for discharging a firearm into an occupied dwelling place, which apparently is a crime in North Carolina, as it should be, I, I suppose, with I mean, that's like the specific crime that he was charged with uh, or not charged with, but arrested for because all of these were dropped. All of these like, never prosecuted. Literally any. everything you just mentioned, everything. like making terroristic threats, kicking down someone's door, pretending to be a cop, shooting into a house. And as you said, more uh, alcohol and theft charges to count. Not a single one he was actually charged with. Not a single one. No. And I, he almost killed somebody when he shot into that apartment because I, I went there trying to learn more. Uh, and I found um, some people that appeared to be most likely undocumented immigrants that spoke Spanish. They were all crammed together in this little apartment. It was in, it was in um, a, a really disadvantaged part of Fayetteville. And they didn't even know what I was talking about at first. Uh, um, 
And then finally, one of them said, "Oh, you mean talking about the guy who shot, who shot, shot through our wall that night?" <laughs> and they actually had a video uh, of it happening, just by pure coincidence. One of the women had been recording uh, a video of her little godson dancing to to some music on the TV, and you can clearly see the moment where this where this like black hole appears, like this little tiny black hole appears in the wall, and like this cone of gypsum powder from the sheetrock shoots out, and I it missed the boy by about eighteen inches, I would estimate. Jesus. And you look on the outside of the apartment, the, there's the bullet hole going through there, going through t- uh, two other walls through a laundry room, and then coming out uh, another apartment across the, across the hall. And I didn't write this in the piece because it was it was just deemed, uh, well, I don't know why it was cut. But, uh, you know, the, the, I knocked on the door of the apartment where the shot came from, and a, a young woman answered the door there. And she was very, she seemed to me very afraid. Um, she denied knowing who Timothy Dumas was. And when I told her that he had died and or that he was dead, she was visibly shocked um, and didn't hadn't known that that had happened. And then started talking more about how she knew him. And I never really learned exactly what had happened. Um, her story was inconsistent and it's just not credible. But um, you know, she she clearly knew the guy. He clearly had been there that day. He she was obviously afraid of him. Um, and I don't know why he fired a gun in her apartment through the wall. Um, I have absolutely no idea, but I do know that the police were there, that they had his name, that they knew what type of firearm he used, and that he just walked after that, even though he had very nearly killed a child. So, I mean, you know, this all ends up with these two guys dead in the woods, right? Um, And uh, as you said, unsolved. Something else that's mentioned in your article is, of course, how there's been something like 44 deaths, not just not like murders, but but deaths in total at Fort Bragg, which I believe is 44 times as many deaths as have occurred with U.S. service members in Afghanistan uh, this past year. Um, And none of them have been solved. I mean, some of them have, you know, have pretty obvious conclusions and stuff, but, but of the murders, none have been solved. There's a, was a fairly prominent case of a beheading, um, that, uh, that, that blew my mind. I, mm-hmm. I got really, I was texting with you about it the other day, but that I got really into looking at that. And that is, there is some spooky shit going on with that. I, I mean, I, I don't mean that in the spy way. I mean, like it, it gave me just like chills to read about. I mean, this guy paratrooper goes into the woods with, with I think five or six of his friends disappears without his phone, his glasses, anything, you know, a guy's almost blind. And then he's, uh, he's decapitated somehow. Uh, and it's, I don't know, a suicide. That's the best anyone can come up with on a barren sort of stretch of stretch of land by the, by the ocean. But I mean, that, that one really chilled me. And it's sort of a similar thing. I mean, it's pretty heinous and sort of spectacular crime or at least spectacular death. I don't know. Um, with no resolution. And, and one gets the feeling it's like, well, are, how hard are they looking into these kind of things? I mean, what, what, what impression you get of that? Yeah. Spooky is a great adjective for it. I'm afraid that I really can't cast that much light on uh, the death of Enrique Roman Martinez um, because it is so bizarre. And there has been, there has been no word at all from, from the investigators. 
But what I can tell you is that, yes, like you said, he did go camping uh, on Memorial Day 2020 with uh, five, excuse me, six other paratroopers. All of these events happened in 2020. Yeah. Um, The 44 that you mentioned happened in 2020. So he goes he goes out on Memorial Day and um, the next day his friends call 911 and say that they can't find him. All of them are uh, members of the 82nd Airborne Division, which is uh, an elite um, army infantry division based out of Fort Bragg. It's not special forces, but I would say it's like the, I would say it's the, the most, um, you know, prestigious uh, division of, of the army. They're all infantry and they're all airborne. So it's like, I, you, you call them like tier three, I guess. But in any case, they were all paratroopers. They were all camping. They call 911. They say their friend is missing. Um, but the kid who makes the 911 call, um, who, well, we agreed, the, the, we agreed with the military not to name him because supposedly he's under investigation, but let me just, his name is known. The kid who made the 911 call, his name is known. And he told false information to the dispatcher. He said that they had been tr- looking for uh, uh, park rangers to uh, ask about their missing friend. And mm-hmm. as it so happened, they had, they really had run into some park rangers earlier that day had said nothing about a missing person and the ranger whom they talked to, the rangers remembered this and immediately like negated publicly this, uh, this kid's account. They said, no, you, you know, you didn't say anything about a missing person when we talked to you like two hours before you made the 911 call. So something was, something is up there. And at first there was no body. It was just missing. And then, um, actually it was like six months before it was like six months later. And it, it just a few days after Billy Levine, and Timothy Dumas were found in the woods. The army finally released the autopsy report from because the, they had found partial remains, and that disclosed uh, the examiner, the medical examiner, disclosed that not only had was the cause of death homicide, but he had been beheaded, and in fact, they only found his head. The rest of his body remains missing. Um, so that's kind of all that was out there when I started um, the reporting, which. And I'm afraid I wasn't able to add too much to it, except that I learned that Enrique Roman Martinez, according to his sister, was really into psychedelics um, and especially into psychedelic mushrooms and wanted to be a pharmacist after he got out of the army. And that's why he had joined the army um, was to get money for the GI Bill to become a pharmacist. And his friend, fellow paratrooper named Christian Romero, uh, who's also based at Fort Bragg, Fort Bragg told me that uh, they were in LSD. Both of them were in LSD. And uh, excuse me, Romero never told me in so many words that he himself used LSD, but it was clear. He said it's the most commonly used drug at Fort Bragg and that, that Roman was into it and that multiple soldiers had offered to sell it to him. And that that soldier who uh, made the 911 call on the camping trip um, was not only using LSD, but dealing LSD at Fort Bragg. So that's an interesting wrinkle in the story because, you know, like Levine's case, it also involves some kind of drug trafficking right. and, and then like an unsolved death, which is very su- suggestive facts. However, it, it doesn't really prove anything. I think what the conclusion that you can draw is that CID has, uh, excuse me, Army's uh, Criminal Investigative Division um, has been on this case for a year and has arrested nobody and disclose nothing. And 
those 44 deaths that that uh, have taken place at Fort Bragg, that's just the number that I was able to count, by the way. The right. military won't say how many soldiers died at Fort Bragg in 2020. So that's just what, what I'm able to glean from multiple sources patching it together. So it's um, it's a reasonable inference that there have been even more. But of the ones that have been homicides, CID has solved none of them. CID also kind of moves in and, and muscles out, it would seem, uh, the local investigators and takes over these cases and then just sits on them and just doesn't solve them. They have solved none of them. Um, and there have also been, I, I think, five cases at Fort Bragg in 2020 where we don't even know what the cause of death was. They just say someone was found in their bunk. Jesus. So it, Yeah, the military is like um, Walt Disney World, actually, and Disneyland in that way, where you'll never get actual numbers of how many people die at Disneyland either. They keep that shit. Oh, Super do they? Tight too. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. I wow. feel like we should pause for a second because, you know, we're talking so much about Fort Bragg. Maybe we should kind of get into actually what goes on at Fort Bragg because it is unique. We've talked, you know, we've thrown around these words, you know, Green Berets, uh, you know, Delta Force. Uh, what are the other ones? I'm tier one. Yeah, tier one. Rangers. Yeah, Rangers, yes. Yeah, uh, Seals. The SEAL SEALs, Team 6. Yeah, SEAL Team 6, of course, the most famous. Um, but we sh- can we kind of like walk through? Because this is a really, like you say, elite is the is a great way to phrase it, but also just a very unique, um, I don't know, segment of the military. I mean, I don't even know. It's, it's difficult to kind of even figure out the right words to describe um, how special ops are situated in our military. <laughs> yeah. Well, I got bad news for y'all as American citizens, but there's like a military within the military now uh, <laughs> oh, called, called, called JSOC, and it pretty much does whatever uh, it wants, and it yeah. gets as much money as it wants, and it's total, everything that they do is totally secret, and it answers directly to the president, and there's no congressional oversight. There's no meaningful congressional oversight over its activities. Um and the most significant thing about Fort Bragg and the whole constellation of army bases is that it's the headquarters of JSOC. And it's not on any map, and you can't find photos of it, but there's a compound within Fort Bragg um, where JSOC is physically located. And that's just not, that's like, you know, you can say like Apple is physically located, I don't know, Cupertino or what have you. But those are just office buildings. What JSOC has actual like fleets of aircraft, weapon systems, training areas, barracks. That's all there. You can't see it. You can't go there. Um, everything about JSOC is secret. And so that's the real, the real significance of Fort Bragg is that it, it's, it's the home of JSOC, but it's also the home of the tier two uh, special forces formations of the, of the military, inclu- of the army, uh, including the Green Berets, uh, the Army Rangers, uh, and what's called USASOC, the U.S. Army um, Special Operations Command. And then, as I mentioned before, 82nd Airborne is there, which is, you know, tippy top tier of all the army divisions. So Fort Bragg is like where it's at in terms of money, prestige, power, secrecy within, you know, within the military. So the thing that is always kind of almost sounds fake about JSOC is just that it has this like, I don't know. I, 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 this may be a bad analogy because I'm not really familiar with it, but the, like an Avengers like quality to it Mm. where it's like bringing together all of these different, like, top of the best cream of the crop and it, it's almost like what a child would think of like i'm making an army out of the best guys in the actual army because jsoc what it is 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 it's a coalition <laughs> a popular front uh well i guess more an elite front 
of of the best units from each of the different branches um and bringing them all together essentially as a very specialized sort of weapon to be used although that specialization has seen its um area grow and grow and grow and grow and grow since 9/11 but i mean who who makes up jsoc like what is cuz jsoc i mean it 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 really is it's just like it's a, su- a super group essentially i mean it's the traveling wilburys of guys who shoot your some peasants in the middle of the night uh, absolutely who's in it so jsoc um really grows emerges out of delta force itself which we've talked about a little bit so the special forces come out of vietnam Delta Force comes out of the Special Forces. It's like the the most elite of the Special Forces. Most elite of the Green Berets become Delta Force. But in 1980, there's the failed rescue of hostages mm-hmm. in Iran, which is the biggest disaster, I would say, in Delta Force, or one of the biggest disasters in Delta Force history, um, where they completely failed to accomplish the mission and also lost a bunch of guys. And I, I'm pretty sure a lot of it was filmed as well. So lost Jimmy Carter, the election supposedly. But um, so after that, they decided to make some changes to it in order to create a more effective um, elite intelligence and rating force is basically what JSOC does. And they spun up SEAL Team 6, uh, was created in the aftermath of the failed rescue, uh, failed Iranian hostage rescue. And then they also stuck some Ranger battalions with, with Delta Force. And, then, and that was JSOC. That was the Joint Special Operations Command. And the idea was that by unifying the command uh, over the tier one um, commando units of each of the service branches, that they would more effectively be able to carry out, you know, just some of the military sort of lingo, full spectrum operations. They want to be able to do anything and everything anywhere on earth is the the idea, Um, whether it's rescuing hostages, whether it's um, carrying out assassinations whether it's uh, securing airfields, maybe arresting heads of state in some cases, like mm. in Panama. Um, and um, so, so that, that was the idea. That was the original purpose of, of JSOC. Um, and it existed for several decades, really kind of in the shadows, where it did carry out some operations, some successful, some less so. It was very involved in uh, the, the, the little war in Granada. Actually, although the war in Granada is remembered kind of as a joke, um, because it was such a small and easy target. Actually, for JSOC, it was very challenging. They lost a lot of people. Yeah, four SEALs died uh, swimming in in order to go arrest some Grenadian teenagers or whatever they were planning on doing. Invasion of Grenada is just such a... I don't know if you've ever seen very that comic odd. book that the CIA put out, <laughs> um, but it is one of the, the... The CIA Grenada comic book is probably uh, a, low, a low point of a low form to begin with. Well, that's my my understanding too. Is like JSOC was real lean for a really long time. I mm-hmm. mean, I know that it could like barely get any funding in like 1980, and it was really like kind of like I mean, it was kind of not an experiment, but it was like a a real sort of like special. I mean, special project, sort of like oh, we're just gonna try this thing, and it it, it had a hard time kind of gaining steam. It seems up into like through the later years of the Reagan admin, when it starts to really pick up. I mean, unsurprisingly, I think for people, students of American history who understand kind of, you know, you said, you mentioned the disaster of the Iran uh, hostage crisis. I would say that it's a disaster only depending on which side you're looking at it, because it was not a disaster for Ronald Reagan, who was promptly elected um, and ushered into power afterwards. Um, 
Or or his buddy George Bush, who of course has his own relationship with JSOC. Yeah, funny how that funny how that worked out. Well, uh, interesting you mentioned George H.W. There's actually a great kind of like lesser works of Seymour Hirsch, is all the vice president's men, which he wrote mm. for the London Review of Books, where he talks about um, a I don't know if unit is the right word, but a group of military operatives that mm-hmm. were run out of the executive office building, out of the vice president's office when H.W. was vice president uh, under Ronald Reagan. And uh, this group of people were, uh, I don't know exactly what to call them. It was all very informal. Uh, there weren't a lot of records that were kept. Maybe there were no records kept at all. But according to Hirsch's reporting, they carried out I don't know how many, but the number of countries that they carried operations in was, I, I think, 15 or 20. Uh, they, um, it was a lot of them were in Latin America. A lot of them were, were on the African continent. And the essence of this group, uh, according to Hirsch's reporting, was that it, it, they were elite military operators, but they were outside of the, the Pentagon chain of command. They're outside the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Yeah. So that uh, removes them from congressional scrutiny because Congress has a lot of power over the military. It's just it doesn't answer directly to the president traditionally. Um, and the, I, I think the essence of JSOC is that it's a military that does answer directly to the president. It's kind of yeah. like, it's kind of like, I, I, I would describe it as like a Praetorian guard, the unitary executive. Um, it's, uh, it's everything it does is covert. Yeah. Um, the, the, the chain of command goes to almost directly from the, from the president to the commander of JSOC. Uh, and then, you know, there's just one or two steps until, until you get to a guy like Billy Levine. Um, and they're able to do things without without even the Pentagon knowing. So the Secretary of Defense himself may not even know about things that, that JSOC is doing, which is fairly incredible. And Hirsch says explicitly in the article that you know that what the unit that HW was running was uh, the sort of original template for what JSOC became. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is so important for understanding the. I mean, this is. You know, this is something that we kind of like harp on in the podcast, and we really made a point of kind of trying to situate our series on 9-11 about is the transformation that happens from Reagan through HW, uh, and, you know, again, the seeds are planted much earlier in American history, and then up through uh, Clinton and Bush and Obama's tenure is remarkable. And this there's a real pivot point that happens at 9-11, right? Where, but, the, but you see these seeds where, you know, HW, you know, he comes from CIA, longtime CIA guy, uh, then director of the CIA, then, you know, running this clandestine, basically, like you say, the model for clandestine special ops that now basically... <laughs> like hoovers up so much like an untraceable amount of money uh from the you know the US budget or whatever like is completely and totally like you say uh there's no congressional oversight no public oversight no nothing and this entire program has completely and totally expanded outside of what you would even call like you know uh hostage crises on you know Palestinian terrorists and taking cruise ships or whatever was happening in the eighties mm-hmm. to like, God knows what the hell they're doing. We, I mean, we just, you would have absolutely no clue and it's, it's fucking massive. It's massive program now. Yes. I, and no one knows how many it is. Uh, you know, the pre, like you said, the pre nine 11 JSOC was just kind of a small and in some ways even kind of like disreputable, 
little mm. part of the military that wasn't used very often. That was kind of looked at askance. And after 9-11, the, the, just the gloves absolutely came off. They got unlimited funding, unlimited personnel, uh, much greater operational leeway. I mean, and at the present, and then that, that trend just continuously accelerated, like literally from then until now, and it continues to, to this day. And no one knows how many people are in JSOC, but the, um, the larger formation over JSOC, the SOCOM, uh, has 70,000 people. And they all exist to support, you know, guys like Billy Levine, Tier One operators, SEAL Team Six, Delta Force, and I would say that the the JSOC and special operations more generally are the whole ball game now. The, the rest yeah. of the conventional military is, um, you know, I don't want to say that they have a, essentially they've been relegated to a civilian role, but almost uh, they really don't do um, any of the real stuff, the, any of the real fighting, killing, uh, yeah, and absolutely. and dying. That, that you know, that it's it's all been special force, special force. I don't even know how to say that. Special uh, forcealized, yeah, totally. <laughs> special forcesification. I don't. Well, it's all it's, become special forces. The whole yeah, ballgame is special forces. A real question, even how com- um, you know, uh, how competitive even some of the like standard DoD tech is at this point. Like, I don't know. That's a real. That's a real question. I think what looking at like um, you know advancements in other militaries and stuff. So it the fact that they spend and direct so much into special forces is. Um, I don't know. We, we, I always say the thing about the U S military is that it's, um, muscle bound where it's this real, like vast, massive thing that can't be nimble at all in any way. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, and special forces is this, like, it makes sense that they would then use that as a way to have any kind of like maneuvering space around the world when the, when the actual military like really can't. Well, well, it makes sense because one of the big problems that the U.S. has sort of encountered post-World War II is that we're no longer fighting these sort of pitched battles. I mean, aside from some instances in Vietnam and obviously certain instances in like, you know, Desert Storm and in the Iraq War, but not not to a great degree, is that most of what the U.S. military functions uh, functions are are counter guerrilla and uh, you know counter insurgency sort of thing, and that is famously, in fact, that is one of the things that I think even if you don't know much about warfare, that is something you might know is that the U.S. military has not been very effective. Well, depending on sort of what criteria you're using, on clamping down on insurgencies. What and because the reason is because it's the big I don't know what, what they call it the big green machine or whatever in Vietnam because that's what it is it's this giant machine and famously not too great at uh, at 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 being able to be nimble and what you have with JSOC is not only do you have this nimbleness but you have this whole self contained nimbleness you have your own intelligence signals intelligence mm-hmm. and human intelligence yeah. you have your own transportation. You have your own, you know, you have different teams or special mission units uh, that are dedicated to, you know, to specific tasks that you can use for those kind of things. And so, I mean, from talking to people I know that have been in the army that have deployed in Iraq, specifically people that were there uh, sort of in the later years, um, is that a lot of their role is essentially as support of, of JSOC. I mean, when, mm-hmm. when we had Nico on the show, I, I can't remember if it was on the show or it was after, but he's telling me, that, I mean, a lot of their job was literally just going and setting a cordon around a site where the special forces went into. And so that's what, I mean, essentially a lot of what you do as an infantryman, if you even go out into the field at all, is to provide a, a, like a, 
basically a ring of security around these guys who are going in and kicking in the doors and stuff like that. And, and I mean, that is actually a massive shift from what the army used to be. I mean, that it's, it's, it's really incredible. And not only do you have that, but you also have, um, I mean, I remember, remember when that was that whole hubbub about Trump being rude to the widow of the guy uh, of the, uh, I think it was like a seal that was killed. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, can't even yeah. remember what fucking country it was in, but it was in, in an African country yeah. that there was not a lot of press about the Mali, maybe Mali. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause the, I know the French are there. Um, and, uh, and there was all this hubbub about Trump being, you know, sort of, uh, blase or rude or something to this widow. But not a lot of hubbub of why is this guy in Africa, in Mali, in Mali? Yeah, yeah. like why, why, why is anyone? And, and as you yeah, mentioned, or Niger, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think I can't remember in my head it's Somalia, but I don't think so because I don't think that would have really surprised anybody. Um, but uh, but I mean, like you mentioned too, like how is a guy getting blown up by an IED in Tajikistan in 2017? Because it's, so it's because it's not just JSOC replacing regular troops out on the battlefield. It's the fact that JSOC is deploying to battlefields that I don't think most people even know are battlefields, yeah, let totally, alone the battlefields totally. that American troops are on. And so, I mean, can you even get a scope of like, you said this guy, 14 deployments. I mean, where was this guy going? Yeah, his dad didn't even know. I mean, he, he definitely mentioned Iraq, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Um, I think that the African continent, particularly North Africa mm. and uh, Eastern Africa, also all of North Africa, really, West, East, Central, um, it, it has a major uh, JSOC footprint. Somalia, interestingly, is kind of like a constant through line through the unit's history. Um, they, you know, of course, there was the Black Hawk Down incident there. But like you said, they have little bases all over the place. No, nobody knows exactly where they are, but it's it's definitely more than you know twelve and probably more than twenty countries. We know that Billy Levine, um, the Delta Force soldier who was found dead, spoke Tagalog. Uh, according to his military records, he had gone to the Tagalog school. So he had been in the Philippines at some point, probably fighting um, ISIS yeah. in um, what is that island called? Malawi. Uh, Mind- but, Mindanao. I think it's called Malawi. Oh yeah, Malawi. Yeah, yeah. Or he was fighting the CPP. Oh, God knows. God knows. But I mean, they're everywhere. Um, and I think probably their heaviest footprint is in the Horn of Africa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, S- Somalia is a super fascinating case when it comes to any kind of talk about JSOC. I mean, you could tell the whole story of JSOC through the lens of Somalia. Hmm. Um, and, you know, most recently, Trump kind of like in his at- last act in office, kind of kind of like a, a low key thing. It wasn't super reported, but he withdrew all U.S. troops from Somalia. Yeah which is probably the first time that U.S. troops had um, withdrawn from there in 20 years or so, if not if not 30 years or something like that. I mean, they, they have been there more or less constantly. I think there was a time from like um, in the late 90s, and early 2000s, and they weren't there. But in any event, what does it mean to say that JSOC is in Somalia? Well, it actually means that they're quite literally there. They like have a base and there's like a, there'll be like a team. It's called, um, so they have different AOs, areas of operation, like Team 6 is Afghanistan, Delta Force is Iraq and Syria. Um, Somalia is team six. Um, so they, they call it holding the trident is when they'll, they'll be like, there'll be like a, a seal team squadron on the ground in Somalia, just sitting around waiting to get a call to just, just go whack some Al-Shabaab, you know, warlord or whatever. Um, or, or do some action against, uh, against, you know, what are called pirates, um, off the, off the horn of Africa. And, and so they're really there just like waiting all the time, yeah. just like, you know, sharpening their knife and, and cleaning their weapon. Um, so, and that's the case in a, in a lot of countries all over, 
uh, Northern Africa, a lot of, a lot of failed states, a lot of frozen conflicts. Um, but probably their heaviest presence beside that is, is, uh, um, in Northern Syria. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know if you want to talk about your experiences there, if you, you know, cause you would have seen Delta Force guys probably on the ground frequently. Well, Brace is, you know, Delta Force himself. So it makes sense. Well, I, I will say that I spoke to one of your former Havals, one of your former comrades in arms, uh, over there who was involved in the battle of Raqqa. And he told me that, um, you know, he ran into a group of, you know, I don't know for sure that they're Delta Force, but they, you would, you would guess. I, mean, I, I saw a lot of these guys in, during the Battle of Raqqa parked in, you know, parked in Humvees or running around mm. MRAPs, uh, or occasionally I would see them like in small fobs um, on the side of the road. You would see guys like just smoking cigarettes with their shirts off or whatever. I assume they're Delta Force because it's Delta Force's AO, but I don't actually know that. Um, but, you know, with the number of guys who are there, which according to the military um, is 500 in reality is more like 2000. I think it's safe to say that there's several hundred uh, Delta operators there. And a lot of the other guys are support staff. I've actually interviewed a few of like national guard people in, in Somalia. Uh, interestingly, like, mm. I don't know how that happens, but you can, I guess you can get called off your job. as like a, it's like a delivery man. To get, Those are like to the mayor, the future mayor Pete's national guard <laughs> in Afghanistan. Showing the future up. mayor Pete's are nowhere near Syria right now. That's for sure. <laughs> no, they might no. get killed by accident. Uh, just to finish that story, you know, that um, one of your former comrades told me that he saw a group of um, what I presume were Delta Force guys and they looked like a biker gang were his words. Mm-hmm. You know, they had tattoos yeah. on their neck, tattoos on their hands, big scraggly ass beards, long hair, all out of regulation with their uniforms, you know, all looking all bedraggled, um, but with the best weapons, with the best kit, with the best um, vehicles. So. I thought that was a, a an arresting portrait that he kind of drew from memory of seeing these guys and, and the way that they roll. And I think it's fascinating to talk about like the culture of special forces and the aesthetic of special forces, because I think that's almost been more significant than the operations that they've done. Well, I mean, that, that absolutely tracks from what I've seen. I mean, when, 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 when I saw guys who kind of look like that, I mean, they didn't look anything like any sort of soldier I'd ever seen before in my life. And I mean, and that's, that's sort of, I mean, kind of the special forces dream, right? Like it's famously, that's the, that's where you're allowed to grow a beard. You know, you don't have to be in, in, in reg grooming regulations or whatever with the army. I mean, it's where you, you have all of this like intense amount of leeway, uh, you know, it's ranging from the way you dress to the way you carry out missions and stuff. And, and something you talk about with Levine is that Levine wasn't just like a, you know, a, a door kicker, you know, trigger puller guy. I mean, the guy was trained in spycraft as well. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's, I think an important facet here is that. It, they're almost like if you deploy, you know, a, a, a JSOC, I don't even know what they call their deployment groups or whatever. But, uh, you know, if you deploy them to a country, it's like you actually have almost this self-contained group that can do all of these, can wear these disguises and, you know, are trained in like basically spycraft, but also, you know, can, can you know, mow down whoever they need to mow down or whoever they want to mow down. Uh, I mean, and there's this, I think it, it it's pretty clear that yet even more than in the regular army, there is this culture of impunity that like you see with, with, I mean, cases like Eddie Gallagher's, for instance. I mean, that was one of the most fucking sickening things, you know, you can, I mean, he slit a, a child's throat essentially uh, and, and was celebrated as a hero by all of these, these different people. 
Yeah, that that's it. Really was sickening. I mean, how how um, evil do you have to be to be reported by your own like fellow seals? Like, yeah, it's excessive for them. That, that's really bad. And I don't know if you've seen the video. It's 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 um it's awful. You know, the, I think the last thing that 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 kid said because like you you mentioned he was a child soldier. It was it was something just heartbreaking. He was like, you know, my, my he was all delirious um, because he'd been wounded. I think he said, you know, my father told me not to join ISIS or something like that. Yeah. because a lot of ISIS. Um, Fighters are child soldiers yep. who are totally illiterate. They grew up in Sunni villages in the Anbar province or in Derazor, um, and are often conscripted into fighting. So yeah, it's really it was really sickening to see this like, roided up seal just go up there and I stab mean, him in the neck. I've so, seen like ISIS teenagers, and like you know, it's it, no part of me was ever like, yeah, I should stab this guy in the neck. I mean, it's in like I, I I mean, it's it's. I've known a lot of like fucked up guys in various capacities in my life. And even the most fucked up guys I know, I don't think would have slit a child's throat in that instance. I mean, it's just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that Levine, I think had really struggled with the most, according to people who knew him was that he at some point had killed a child um, who was carrying a, he saw a child carrying a gun and killed him. Um, But, you know, according to um, Nicole Rick, who, as I mentioned, I was kind of partying with him and his brother, her brother uh, would talk to the other Delta force guys as it reported in the, in the article, it wasn't just Levine who was um, allegedly using cocaine. Um, Nicole Rick and, and Laura Leschker both observed other members of Levine's same squad using coke with him. Mm-hmm. Hey, and hey, listen, far be it for me to like narc on people for using drugs. I honestly don't care totally against the war on drugs and pro drug legalization. But like on the other hand, like Delta Force, you know, is at the tip of the spear in the war on drugs, and in fact played a role in the capture of El Chapo Guzman, uh, a covert role in that. That's a fascinating little side track we could go on. But um, they're all involved all over Latin America and so forth. So when you have, and of course they're charged with these these heavy responsibilities of carrying out these operations. So um, the fact that that cocaine use could be that prevalent among you know tier one operators is, is kind of disturbing especially when you see them completely wiling out and and killing each other yeah i mean you mentioned in the article too you know there was a seal that was that was caught an ex-sealed i guess a reservist seal at that point who had been who had been active duty and then was in reserves at, at the time of his arrest who was arrested bringing 10 kilos of coke into an airport in florida and that that <laughs> To me, and it talked about his deployments all over Latin America, specifically Colombia, which you know, one guess as to what he's doing there, probably training guys that go out and kill cocoa farmers, uh, or go out and steal their cocoa and uh, or coca, excuse me. What what's the cocaine one? It's coca. Coca. Yeah, coca. I'm thinking of chocolate. Um, but uh, but I mean that's that that's that's a big thing when we talk about you know the invasion of Panama. I mean, Delta Force, or no, excuse me, not Delta Force, but JSOC has been all over Latin America. And you, you know, somebody who covers um, conflicts, let's say, and organized crime uh, in the area. I mean, can you can you kind of give us any insight on that, like what their role is or what any parallels are specifically like with Mexico? Yeah, sure. You know, JSOC has never stood down from the war on drugs in, in Latin America. They've been all over that from the very beginning. Um, it was supposed to be sort of the this U.S. security paradigm after the Cold War was going to be the war on drugs. 
Uh, it turned out, you know, it turned out to be a war on terror. It didn't last too long, but it, it still has continued to, to the present day. And so you'll find special operators all over uh, Colombia. You'll find JSOC people in uh, Honduras, El Salvador. As, as you mentioned, Mexico, there, there's a lot of cooperation between Mexican security forces and um, JSOC, also the CIA, but I think chiefly JSOC now. You know, one thing I'd love to talk about on this sort of general topic is the connection between Fort Bragg, uh, special forces, drug trafficking, and a Mexican um, army unit, uh, Mexican uh, sort of uh, uh, drug cartel now called Los Zetas. Yes. And I got tripped up. I was about to say special forces unit because that's how they originally started out. Mm. And Los Zetas started out, uh, it go, the history of them goes back to 1994 and the Zapatista uprising. Uh, in southern Mexico, and there was an elite unit of the Mexican army called the uh, Grupo Aeromobil de Fuerzas Especiales, and it was abbreviated as GAFE. And GAFE was a U.S.-sponsored unit trained at Fort Bragg uh, by Green Berets to be like an elite drug, uh, sort of anti-drug unit of the military, of the Mexican military. In reality, it was used to suppress the peasant uprising in Chiapas in 1994 that arose in response to NAFTA. Um, and in an incredibly brutal way, they were also trained, uh, this group, uh, GAFE, was also trained by the Caibulas in, in Guatemala, um, who in turn received training from the United States, uh, also at Fort Bragg, also from the same units. Um, whether they're JSOC or not, I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly what these uh, training programs consist of. The School of Americas is also another thing that comes up in this context. These, these type of units consistently yes. trained there. Um, GAFE becomes um, the sort of, you know, what JSOC is to the U.S. military, GAFE was to the Mexican military. And then at a certain point in the late 1990s, the Ocial Cardenas Guillen, the head of the uh, Gulf Cartel in Matamoros, Mexico, decided that he was just going to pay these guys to defect in mass to the to the Gulf Cartel. How many end up defecting? Um, I don't know exactly. I don't know. It, it's it's kind of a small number. The the Zetas quickly grow beyond their original special forces roots yeah. and, and come to encompass non special forces guys. But the first ones were probably about twelve. I think mm-hmm. probably about twelve. Not that many. They were supposed to be like the sort of bodyguard force for OCL. Um, the Praetorians. Like uh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so for, for years, they were part of the Gulf cartel, part of trafficking um, drugs in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas. And then in 2010, they split off from the Gulf and really sort of paramilitarized the, the uh, drug war in Mexico and the cartel war, the, the narco conflict down there, which I think it's important to emphasize is like one of the world's most murderous conflicts, if not the most. I think it's only second only to Syria in terms of the number of homicides that have taken place in Mexico over the last 10 years. Um, it's really terrible and it doesn't get talked about enough, but in any event, the Los Zetas, you know, they bring this special forces model, bring this um, uh, like Fort Bragg ingrained model of fighting to the drug war and quickly, you know, become by far the most, you know, competent fighters in, in this conflict, which quickly becomes territorial, becomes, like I said, paramilitarized. And the, they sort of pioneer this new model 
of being what it means to be a drug cartel in which they specifically control territory. They said, all right, Nuevo Laredo, from Nuevo Laredo to, to, to Reynosa, this is not just now ours military. Like you're, no one can enter this, these areas. Police can't enter, military can't enter. It's ours. Um, and in, combined with that, they also use this model of, um, I guess the only word for it is terrorism, committing horrific atrocities um, that seem like just insane acts of violence, you know, like dumping uh, a bunch of heads, you know, out of an ice chest in, in front of your house or, or hanging a bunch of bodies from a bridge that are horribly mutilated or releasing awful snuff videos of people being tortured yeah. and executed to death. Those kind of things that were, those, those were really, um, I think, taken to the, to the extreme level by, by Los Zetas. Um, and it's interesting just to trace this thread back to sort of the, this, the, this, idea of special forces, you know, in Latin America in terms of suppressing unions and, and peasants and then getting co-opted into the drug trade and then eventually taking over the drug trade and then turning into into this, this uh, terrifying conflict that we, that we see today. Um, so that's just a side note to, to as like a really, um, really uh, extreme example of this, of the spread of the, this concept of special forces to the rest of the world, because the essence of special forces isn't just, we're elite, we're special. It's that the rules don't apply to us. We can do whatever we yeah, want. Absolutely. It, really it's all, point. it's all in secret. Um, and you know, it's almost like this sort of this, this atavism to it, uh, or this sort of like regression, these units mm. become feral. That's why they have beards. That's why I don't care about their uniforms. That's how they get tattoos on their neck. Yeah. That's why they'll, you know, commit. That's why they'll kill people with tomahawks, for example, and like steel team six in Iraq. Um, so, yeah, it's like a it's like a um it's a statement about saying it's an acknowledgement of rules and saying there are actually rules and that we're the exception. Exactly. And so there's this sort of like two step there that's very dangerous. Um you mentioned the spread. I I kind of want to go back the or the spread of this idea of special forces. I want to go back to something you said which is just the culture and kind of the like the, even the cultural image that has been developed pushed propagandized i mean i don't even know how else to say it like i i would say that this people know about the special forces because of the shit they see in the movies and on tv and on the video games and the sheer amount of you know don't forget that's a huge huge spend of the u.s military and the u.s budget as well like it, i don't think it's a i don't think it's a it's strange for you to conjure the image of the avengers like that is a very direct thing that marvel and disney aka the u.s state propaganda machine is doing <laughs> by assembling the in these fucking movies right i mean that's all that that shit is so like i do think that it's been interesting watching the way that i mean we did a couple episodes a while back on blackwater and eric prince and kind of like it was interesting for me to get back in that headspace of that time of the Iraq war, where I feel like the culture around the military and the kind of image that it was projecting was very different. I mean, it was that kind of renegade, like, but it was very patriotic. It was very like, I mean, you know, it's like, what we talked, what was the, what was the band? Like the, the Everclears and the creeds and, you know, it's this kind of like God country kind of like whatever. And it is like very different. I mean, it is like, there's a nihilism now. There is a there is like a, a kind of a death cult around it that 
I mean, that's at least something that I pick up on. I don't know where, what you guys think, but I, I feel like there has been a marked like shift in what? the culture of the kind of like, and in how the special units like project themselves, which is like one thing, but also the culture, the like internal culture and kind of like the kind of people that are drawn to it. Yeah, it's so, it's so, you know, the aesthetic thing uh, and cultural things around it are so interesting because if it were just an extension of the military itself and an extension of sort of the logic of what it is to be a good soldier, it would, you know, it, the military emphasizes being clean shaven all the time, right. having a uniform like spick and span, always following the rules, everyone calling everyone sir or man, ma'am. And it's almost as if, you know, the higher up you get, the more like it's it's the rules. It's not that they don't apply to you. It's that they're specifically inverted or it's like the opposite. Mm-hmm. So the aesthetic or the ideal becomes just like to look as shitty as you possibly can. In Delta Force, they all call each other by their first names. They don't use ranks. Uh, and there's something I can't pretend to understand it all, but there's almost something atavistic about it. I think I used that word earlier. It's like, it, it's, it's like, um, the sort of darkness in, in the, in the center that grows in the center of these lethal bureaucracies yeah, where, totally. where, uh, uh, behind the cloak of secrecy, they just, they just get feral, uh, and fierce, you know, and mm. it, I think it shows in the symbols that they use as well. It's not just dressing like they are part of a biker gang, but it's also the use of symbols like tomahawks. Uh, skulls, arrows, um, mm. ghosts. How often do we hear about like ghost soldiers? It's mm-hmm. like it's very primitive um, sort sort of s- symbology that exists around it. And like I said, I, I can't pretend to understand it all, but you know, you kind of know it when you see it. And it's like kind of this attitude that they exude. And you mentioned like in the early days of the Iraq War it was a bit different. And I think that's very true. Like there was a certain point in which it shifted to the sort of nihilism because now like we don't see them presented culturally as like heroes. Uh, all of the sort of ex-special forces right, guys right. that you might see in movies are all disgruntled and like just full of like this macho emo sort of butt hurt for lack of a better word. Um, and uh, it, but on the topic of movies it's it's so important to you know what the what they are what special forces are and and how they're perceived uh that sort of link between between them and hollywood uh which is extremely robust it, you know brace and i were talking earlier about the case of captain phillips uh, yeah. the rescue of captain phillips <laughs> and i think that that one's just uh <laughs> seth hit me to one of the greatest facts i've ever heard in my entire life <laughs> yeah well it's a perfect like sort of example or sort of like microcosm of how jsoc operates in the world it's like this kind of four-step process because for for those listeners who don't know this took place in somalia uh, the the mayor i think it was in 2008 or nine i'm not sure maybe 2009, but there was a, uh, a container ship called the Marisk Alabama that was attacked um, by uh, uh, Somali quote unquote pirates. I say quote unquote, because why yeah, are they pirates? That's a it's named be- population. We decide who's a pirate, who's not a pirate. Exactly. They're pirates because their uh, territorial waters have been ransacked by the international fleet, uh, oh. Chinese ships, uh, Japanese ships, U uh, S ships as well. The so-called pirates were really a sort of self-defense force that um, of the some, uh, organically in Somalia that, that just started hijacking ships in order to assert territorially their sovereignty, which they're at a loss to do because of the failure of their central government. I digress. They they really did kidnap this guy, Captain Phillips, um, the captain of the Maersk, Alabama. Um, JSOX called in. Like I said, there's always a SEAL squadron in, in Somalia that's holding the trident. They go into action, and you know, honestly, it is. On some level, I've got to acknowledge kind of cool the sort of things that these guys do, um, which is, you know, in this case, jumping out of planes at a high altitude, landing in the middle of the Indian Ocean and then swimming up to a container ship 
um, which is, you can imagine it's like swimming up to a floating skyscraper in this totally tossing insane. seas, uh, climbing aboard with all their sniper gear and then getting set up because the pirates um, had Phillips in a, a tow, a rowboat or towboat being towed behind the container ship. And so they set up with their, with their weapons and, um, you know, to have both of those ships, um, on the waves, you know, changing, um, moving constantly and to be able to execute as they did, you know, these headshots, according to the military, um, account of it, to execute three flawless headshots at the same time. Uh, there's just not a lot of soldiers that can, that can do that. They can pull Mm. an operation like that off, but they did. Uh, and then they step two immediately, like just desecrated the shit out of all the bodies, mm-hmm. um, killed anyone that sort like double tapped all the survivors. Um, a lawyer who reviewed the photos afterwards, who represented, I think one of the surviving uh, pirates. Yeah. In his trial one, one went to prison in America. That's right. Yeah. So the lawyer who represented him got to see the photos and suppose up until that point, supposedly it had just been three shots that had killed these guys. Uh, and he was like, no, they were shot like 19 times a piece. Um, so that's a consistent thing that you'll see. Check out Matthew Cole's reporting on SEAL mm. Team 6, the crimes of SEAL Team yeah, 6. Yeah, that's a good article. Um, there's, like I said before, there's something sort of feral and fierce yeah. about these guys once you've got 100 plus confirmed kills, once you've done like 12 rotations in the Ambar province, you know. Um, so they, and then step three, they immediately steal all the money uh, because there were. <laughs> There, there was $30,000 in cash on that lifeboat uh, and it just disappeared the second the seal set foot on it and was never seen again. <laughs> yeah, like they, they basically, because a lot of times what pirates do, I had a dream of becoming a pirate, actually not in Somalia, but in the South China Sea when I was like 18. I was like, I think I could get in on it. They probably don't have any Americans doing this. I would be like a good, you know, good at this. <laughs> Uh, and I realized that most of the time what they do is they basically just mug the crew members. I mean, a lot of times they don't even take hostages. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. you're in this tiny boat. It's not like you're, you know, you're jimmying open all these large containers and stealing like a Mazda, you know, you're essentially just mugging. It's a mugging at sea. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. these ships will have, depending on the ship, I guess, a safe with money in it. And Captain Phillips, uh, uh, had $30,000 in the safe. (laughs) They took it on the boat and then. The SEALs, I guess, decided they needed to, uh, I don't know, buy some new aim points or something. I don't think that made it into the movie. I don't know if it did. (laughs) Step four. Then they make uh, an incredibly hagiographic Hollywood movie about the operation that whitewashes step uh, two and three and just shows step one. Or in the Um, case of Zero Dark Thirty, whitewashes the entire. Well, the thing too about a little addendum to the uh, to the Captain Phillips story uh, in 2013, the Maersk, Alabama, um, was found to have two dead uh, ex Navy SEALs on board from heroin overdoses, and uh, so everything comes full circle. The pirates' mm. revenge, but yeah, these guys were. I mean, a lot of the times I got you know, as I've said on the uh, on the show before, very interested in uh, maritime shipping, but uh, you know, I I I, I I got friends who, you know, sail and I, you know, I study a lot of it myself. And, uh, you know, a lot of times, especially if you're going through areas like this, you know, you'll have security on board. I know yeah. for a lot of people, I've had friends that had to train in small arms, although they don't give you small arms on the ship. So it doesn't really matter. They, a lot of times they have actually these giant water cannons, which I think is probably a, yes. a safe thing. I mean, these things can, you know, really blast the shit out of you. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, two, uh, two seals that were providing security or ex seals that were providing security OD'd in their cabin. 
Yeah, see, I didn't know that. You mentioned that. That's incredible. I didn't, I didn't know that. But I do know that seals love doing drugs um, <laughs> and are constantly getting caught uh, for, do- <laughs> for doing drugs uh, and getting told on by their comrades uh, for just like pumping their bodies full of heroin and, and methamphetamine and cocaine. And they also drink a lot, but, you know, the co- drinking culture in the military is, is just yeah. a much broader topic. Totally. They also all drink a lot. Um, I mean, it's so, it's, it's difficult to talk about at least for me, I don't know. We we were talking a, a little bit about this before we were recording, but it's like on the flip side, you know, it's like you see these horrific thing that these guys are doing. I mean, it's just totally and completely like, uh, de- I mean, just deranged, murderous, just off. I mean, just awful. Um, like, I mean, like you said, it's not three kill shots. It's like 19 shots. It's like slaughtering a kid, mm-hmm. like beheading, you know, it's just really, really brutal crimes. Um and on the other side, it's 14 deployments. It's chewed up in like chewed up meat into the machine of like U.S. war machine. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't even know exactly what it takes to even get to like SEAL Team 6 to get to Delta Force level. I mean, the kind, the amount of training that, you know, as you get through those ranks, in addition to all the deployments, like the drugs are, are what I'm saying is the drugs become... I mean, it's a feature of the entire thing, right? It's not a bug. These are like a way uh, that the machine can only keep running. These guys mm-hmm. just could not, this this could not exist in any other form is kind of what I mean. And and there's something just so, I mean, and I think your article really gets at that, you know, to come full circle with the kind of like these guys shot in the head, completely abandoned bodies in the back of a pickup truck, like this thing is just a fucking machine that spits people out like from every which way. Yeah. Uh, JSOC is an organization that is absolutely drenched in blood. Um, it's, it's uh, really sobering to think about the number of people that like individual mm-hmm. members of some of these units have killed. Um, I don't think that there's anybody on earth that's so psychopathic that they can, you know, kill a hundred plus people in Iraq and Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, what have you, and not have that blowback on their psyche. It all might be different if the wars were for a good cause, but they're not, and everyone knows it now. Um, So what do you do with that? What do you do with that accumulated psychological baggage, that accumulated karma, if you're, when you're someone like Billy Levine, you know, an interesting thing that uh, Nicole told me was that, you know, uh, he said that the other Delta guys that would be sitting around his kitchen table, like snorting lines of Coke and drinking would often boast about the number of people that they had killed and say like, Oh, I had 42 confirmed kills. And the other one guy would be like, you kill 120. Um, she said that Levine never talked like that. And it would seem to like bother him. And, you know, we were talking about the killing of Abu Bakr, al-Baghdadi we briefly mentioned it earlier and also like the Hollywood treatment of this one thing that they really like to do after these ops is they'll put out the heroic dog part of it yes so you, yeah you'll notice that whenever JSOC does an operation there'll be like a there'll be like a, a cool dog um, Conan was the name of the, mm-hmm. of right, the one right, right. that uh, he was a very good boy the uh, <laughs> the uh, I think it's just like a marketing thing where they yeah, know sure. that the American public loves dogs and like it's it's so cool. It, it is yeah. cool, like the idea of a, of a of a Belgian Malinois. I mean, trained as a working dog, but they really do use them because dogs are useful in, in warfare. Um, they use them for all kinds of things, bomb sniffing in particular. 
But um, Levine, interestingly, was a dog lover who would um, – a lot of these dogs, I think, would be ch- people would be chilled to learn off and just put down at the end of their service. But there's a program where um, uh, operators can adopt working dogs when they're done with their time. And Levine was into that. He would adopt the dogs. And because they've all been trained to attack they and are dangerous, um, they had all their teeth removed. So he had a, he had Belgian Malinois with no teeth that, that that in his house that he would be that he would keep around um, dogs that he had actually served with and he told a story uh, to Nicole about one of them and it was one of the sort of things that was stuck with him and bothered him and it was that he was walking through the rubble of some demolished city with this dog. And I guess it was hungry or he just, he just wanted to give the dog a treat. And so he let the dog like eat um, the brains out of a, out of a dead man's skull that was lying there dead in the rubble. Um, And then afterwards, apparently like he really wished he hadn't done that. Like, I guess he just stood there and watched that dog just eat that person's brains. And then afterwards it just sort of really, really stuck with them. I found that to be a detail that was haunting, um, and, and, and just the sort of overview of what you're talking about, like the sanitized Hollywood version of this versus the reality of this. And I think the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not, uh, I think there's a lot of people who join the military that have no political consciousness whatsoever and are not psychopaths and, um, just think it's cool because they're they're like just normie sort of raised in popular culture and what have you. And, uh, some of them of course are going to fit a different profile, but you get into it and you're into it for years. And then it ends up being someone like Mark Leshiker who turns to his wife one night and just says, you know, you know, you know, I'm a bad guy. And she says, well, why, why do you say that? Why do you say that you're a bad guy? He says, well, I kill people for a living. And that quote also stuck with me because it's like, yeah, that's exactly what they do as much as we want to make it or much as they would like to make it about how all the cool halo jumps and disguises that they wear and how good, what good shots they are and how fast they can run and how, how many miles they can march with a rucksack. Like, no, this organization exists to kill people. That's what it does. Um, and the fact that it's grown so big and that there's so little accountability around it, like we don't really know what they're doing. The fact that it exists outside the traditional um, sort of constitutionally established chain of command uh, the fact that it can do any kind of military operation anywhere in the world and the fact that there's this whole panoply of weird executive orders that authorizes them to do whatever they want, assassinations, um, you know, covert actions, things that the government will deny. JSOC is the black ops component of the military. Everything that they do is secret. Um, you know, shout out to Jack Murphy recently reported mm-hmm. that um, that uh, Delta Force was involved in the assassination of Qasim Soleimani in 2020 in Baghdad. They were set up on him on the on the uh, on the airport road outside of the Baghdad airport, waiting to take him out um, if the drone missed. So um, yeah, that's that's JSOC. That's where we're at. Um, that's what the president has at his beck and call now. Well, it's an incredible. I mean, it's an incredible piece. We obviously will link to it in the show notes. Um, highly recommend everyone, uh, t- you know, take a long read with it and sit with it. Um, it's an incredible piece of reporting. And thank you so much for coming on the show to talk about this stuff. Yes. Thank you all for having me. It was a pleasure to talk to you again. Um, and yeah, again, I have to echo that insane piece. Glad to have you on. Great to see you again, Brace. Thanks for having me. 
Well, Liz, I'll tell you one thing. Mm. That definitely gave me some second thoughts about becoming a Navy SEAL. (laughs) Oh, yeah, totally. I know. I think you should rethink that idea. Here's the thing is they talk about, oh, SEAL training is so hard. I'm so wet. Oh, I'm so wet. (laughs) Everyone is always so wet. I'm so, oh, oh, being a Navy SEAL is so hard. I'm so wet. This is really gross. Oh, it's so hard being on SEAL Team 6. I'm so wet. So it's like they're always talking like that. But the thing is, it's like, what are you doing? Swimming around like a goddamn fish? What, who's in yeah, fighting in the damn water? Sometimes they are. Sometimes they are. Who's fighting in the What are you fighting? They're doing a it at, you know, outside of North Korea. That's where they're doing it. Uh, well, yeah. What are they? The what, seas what are they? of Pyongyang. Get the hell out of there! Pyongyang's inland. Here's my thing. You know what I want to see? Because this is in one of the Fast and Furious movies, which I do believe are heavily uh, advised by former Navy SEALs. Obviously. Yeah. Obviously, what? I've never seen it. What so are they there, doing? Uh, yeah, you've never seen it, so you don't fucking know. So, but there is in, I believe it's in seven, six or seven or eight. I can't remember, <laughs> but. What? There's a scene where Ludacris has a quite ludicrous plan that they they do go through, which is they drive the cars out of helicopters to land the cars onto uh, mountains in Afghanistan, I think, to then drive and catch the, the whoever they're catching. Wait, Fast and the Furious, they go to Afghanistan? Oh, yeah. There's a, oh. This I is thought a it was big, like street no, no, racing. Well, it was. But then uh, at one point, The Rock, who was their enemy as he was the cop, then he becomes their kind of frenemy and friend, Hobbs, who there's an offshoot there as well, but um, like an offshoot movie. But um, he worked for the FBI. And so then at that point, there's a at one point, the FBI then uses them, classic trick, street gangs, for their own purposes and asking them to help them out with some you know, catching some bad guys. So there is like, so yeah, they go to Afghanistan in one, there's one where they're, they, Oh, there's a great one where they actually drive a car through two glass towers in Dubai. Like mm. it, it was a big shot. Revenge. In the, yeah. 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 A big 9/11. shot in the, um, in the trailers for the movie, but excellent. I mean, I'm a huge, huge fan. Fast and Furious. Well, speaking of movies, you want something funny, Liz? I actually already told you this, but I should tell our audience. Mm. So Liz is always going on, texting me at all hours of the night. Yo, you got to watch Richard Jew. Yeah, we're on Jew Watch. Jew Watch. Yeah. Oh, I love this freaking uh, fucking Paul Bart split off, spin off, or whatever. Uh, I yeah. fucking. Uh, yeah, Paul. Yeah, it's like Paul Blart. It's like Dark Blart. Um, I'm fucking boys with, with fucking Lynn Wood now. I have his mm. lawyer's number. Well, Dude, I don't. Spoiler alert: We're not talking about that on this episode. Well, I'm just saying. Now I'm basically part of the Jewel universe without <laughs> ever having seen it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, my name. I, actually, let me do the little credit things first. All right, let's talk about this. Uh, music in this episode by Zola Jesus. Who are we going to have next? The freaking Blank Dogs? Oh my God, remember that band? Little Sacred Bones joke. Holy there. shit. Uh-huh. I forgot uh-huh. about Blank Dogs. You know, I was really into that one. Was it an EP? 
Dude, Blank Dogs had some fuck two killer seven inches. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. When was that? Like 2008? That's got to be 2008 because I wrote a uh, Mike Sniper. Who, uh Mike Sniper, if you're listening to this, I've never forgiven you, although you probably haven't forgiven me also for the thing I'm about to say next. Mike mm. Sniper wouldn't do an interview with me for MRR. Mm. So was that at I, the show at the knockout? Because I think – yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah, ended yeah. Up, he kind of glared at me at that. Mm, uh, that was but a great show. I, but I, he, uh, I, so I made one up and I made up this really long involved story <laughs> about how it's called blank dogs because he had seen a ghost dog that his like, uh, Mexican nanny had called a Blanco I dog. I like, vaguely remember this. Yeah, it, he got he got like mad at me Oops, for it. But, you're bad. Yeah, I'm not bad. Uh, but here's the thing: you can just make up interviews with people, and no one will. No yeah, one and know. if they get mad, you know what you say? You go, "Oop, my bad." Oh yeah. Oh, 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 oh my bad. Here's you know what I've learned too. You could just say "my bad," and people are like, oh, "Okay." Yeah, yeah. There's no rebuttal. It's like, "Whoops, my bad," and people are like, "Thanks." They or call that that yeah. There's nothing that, you can say. That was actually the Nuremberg's first defense before they sort of re- revised it. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have uh, we have we have blank dogs on on deck next. Uh, Pink reason coming <laughs> up. I mean, we are really we are cycling through the Cadillac. But no, thank you very much, Zola Jesus. Uh, my name is Brace Moses. Terrible name. My name's Liz. We are joined by producer Young Chomsky. And we will see you next time. Wait, you're supposed to say YouTube. Oh, oh my God. Oh, God. You know what? Keep this in. Keep this in. Keep this in. Keep this in. And if we can, Young Chomsky, can you get your voice in there? Because I want everyone to hear this. This is, listen. This is the bane of our existence. This is, this is, this is, I am clutching my jewel so tightly right now. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. We have a YouTube channel and I want to be very, very clear here. We are not YouTubers. Can I get a nod in agreement from both of you? Yeah. Uh, audience, you can't see that because we don't fucking film this. Uh, we're not <laughs> YouTubers. We do have a YouTube channel, which has the shows from this podcast on it. If you do listen to podcasts on YouTube, one question. Why? Well, okay, so I was thinking about that, and then I was like, hey, maybe people put them on their TV. Like, while you're cleaning the house, you put them on the TV, you just find it on YouTube, there it is, and there you go. Yeah. Well, if you're doing that, I guess you get an exception. But anyways, the YouTube channel is Truanon Pod, all one word. Is that, can I get a smile <laughs> well, as I think a, it's yes? like youtube.com slash. Nope. If you just put Truanon Pod <laughs> into your browser, private browser, uh, you will get our YouTube channel. And in oh fact, you actually get a free, you don't even have to pay for the subscriber episodes anymore. They're just free on there. <laughs> just kidding. Fuck you. Yeah, that's not true. But I will say that no one really looks at our YouTube and we would like people to look at it because we made it. And we're talking about it, which is, you know, what Insane. more can you want from us? Yeah, I need a, yeah, it, it, listen. <sighs> we're both taking showers after this. I doubt, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I got a bunch a of YouTube. guys over. I need to. <laughs> oh, please, come on. What? Hey, I'm, it, listen, if I can't go to Equinox on the Lower East Side, then I'm bringing Equinox showers on the Lower East Side to me. <laughs> Sorry, someone just told me there was a cruising spot like two months ago, and I can't stop thinking about it. I've never been at Equinox in my life. Uh, they say I'm too in too good of shape to go. Let's end the episode. <laughs> All happy, right. Happy Happy Pride Month. What? <laughs> Taking a shower with a bunch of guys I met at Equinox. 
Oh my god. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.